So parents of younger kids, what is one of the chief rules of buying them clothes? I love somebody just said, hand me down. <laughs> you got to buy it with room to grow, right? Because if you buy it and it fits perfectly in like two weeks, it's not going to. Because that is inevitably when the growth spurt's going to happen. And I know this because I bought like nine pairs of shoes in like three months. And they were like, they don't fit again. I was like, how do they not fit? I'm like, let's just cut the end off. And when you're done growing, then we'll get you some shoes that fit. No, room to grow really, it's necessary. And yet, it has to be functional at the same time, right? And so there's that fine line between buying clothes for your kids that are functional but have room to grow in them because, you know, they can't have their sleeves coming down off, you know, their arms and look goofy. But at the same time, if it fits perfectly, we're going to have problems. You're going to be buying clothes all the time. Well, have you ever thought about really how that fits in life? I mean, if God has called us to grow in grace, to move forward in grace, then wouldn't it make sense that God is constantly going to have some things kind of changing in our lives at a level that, that kind of just keeps right ahead of where we're at? Because I think sometimes we want to get really comfortable where we are, right? Like we want to settle in. And God says, oh no, 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 you don't get to settle in. This is a good spot for you, but you're still going to grow further. And so he wants us to be able to, to have some room for him to work, but he doesn't want to overwhelm us with the idea of how far we're actually going to grow. And so he keeps smaller changes happening in our lives over and over and over. Well, Jesus told us a parable about this very thing. In Luke 5, 36-39, it says this. It says, He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one, after drinking the old wine, desires new for he says, the old is good. Now, this short parable right here has so much truth for life in it that we could spend a long time just talking, you know, just kind of teasing out the little truths that are here and, and the broader truths. But one of the things I want us to focus on first within this is the fact that God himself does not change. God does not change. And we have to remember this because as he's talking about making room for new growth and we're talking about you know patching an old garment from a new garment and wineskins expanding and breaking, and we, we have to remember at the core, he's not talking about himself changing. God's not talking about his kingdom changing. He's talking about us because God himself does not change. Now, in theological terms, this is called the immutability of God. You probably won't ever need that phrase again. But it just means He does not and by nature cannot change. Have you ever heard of the things God cannot do? 
You know there are things God can't do? God cannot be tempted by sin. God cannot lie. And God cannot change. Because He is the very definition of existence, the I am. Remember when He had to give His name in the Old Testament, He just said, I am. That's who I am. I, I am. I am the very... If you trace back all of existence to the source, He is the source. That's it. He is the very definition of reality. And that is something that cannot change. God does not change. And so, when we read Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation, we understand that we are talking about the same God who does not change. He has not changed from the beginning and He will never change throughout all of eternity. He is exactly the same as He has always been. Now, I hope that that brings comfort to you. I really do. I hope that you can look and say, okay, you know, in a world where seemingly nothing is stable, our God does not change. He is the definition of stability. What's true of God yesterday is true of God today and will be true of God for all of eternity. It does not change. And in fact, he said it this way in Malachi 3.6, he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And you know what he's saying? He's saying, you're alive because I don't change. You continue to exist because I don't change. See, what he's saying is that God is not given to flights of temper tantrums. <laughs> he doesn't get mad at us and decide, you know what? Never mind! None of us parents have ever been like that, right? You see, he's not like that. He doesn't change. And so his nature is love. His nature is grace. His nature is holiness and righteousness and justice. And he will judge justly, and we want that. But, but I love this because he says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you're not consumed. You see, we need to look at the, the unchanging nature of God as the anchor for our soul in this life. And only that. We have to latch on to the fact that God doesn't change and nothing else. Because guess what? Everything else changes. By nature, it has to. If only God is truly unchanging, then that means everything that is not God must by nature change. And so what happens when we put our hope in something that changes? What happens? That hope is disappointed eventually that hope is disappointed. Now you may even go a lifetime. You may even go, uh, generations may happen without seeing the change, but eventually a change will happen. And hope will be lost. But if we as Christians put our hope in the unchanging nature of God, then we can have a fixed point from which to make decisions, from which to hope, from which to strive towards. And isn't that what we all need in this world? A fixed point that doesn't change? You know, there are things happening in our country that you would have thought just 10 years ago would have been unthinkable. Unthinkable. Never would happen. Never! You would ask people, is it this? Oh no! Not here! And now we're living in it. Guess what? Things change. <laughs> This world is not as stable as we think it is. But guess who is stable? God. 
He is unchanging. And so we, as we go through life, have to learn the difference between the eternal kingdom of God unchanging and the temporal tools of the kingdom of God which are changing. Which are changing all the time. We embrace the unchanging eternal truth of God and use the changing temporal methods of teaching that unchanging truth to people. Now, I'll just use me as an example right here. This is a First Baptist Church, right? Going by, we're Grace family now, but I mean, it's First Baptist Church over 150 years old, okay? How many in here would have thought you would have had a long-haired person preaching behind the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Pleasant Hill? Some of y'all have been around a while and you're like, yeah, <sighs> yeah. Some of the younger people are like, I don't get it. See, things change. And it's, and it's okay, but if we cling to things that are changing as though they were eternal truth, we're going to be disappointed. We're going to be let down. And so we have to learn the difference in labeling temporal things as eternal and learn to grasp on to what is truly eternal and value that above everything else. And Jesus comes along and, and, and we learn the same exact thing. In the New Testament, listen to what he says in Hebrews 13, 8 through 9. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and what? Forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And then the author says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for your heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now, the, the important point here, when he says foods, understand there was a discussion going on about dietary laws and people were attaching eternal significance to ideas of their time that weren't eternal. And what does the author of Hebrews says? He says, it's good for your heart to be strengthened by what? Grace. That's eternal. That is the eternal truth of God, the eternal love of God, that which is unchanging. He says, let that strengthen your heart. As you encounter the changing world, he says, not by fill in the blank. Okay, fill in the blank. For them in this discussion, it was food. Oh, if I eat this certain kind of food, then my life will make sense. And he says, guess what? Didn't benefit those who devoted themselves to him. Have you ever found yourself devoted to something that did not actually benefit you? We all have. We all have in some way. We have looked back on life. We've grown. We've walked with God. And God finally pointed it out and said, hey, you got an idol in your life. You're devoted to something that is not of benefit to you. It doesn't mean it was actually a sin. It doesn't mean it was rebellion. It just means you were devoted at an eternal level to something that was of this world. And it doesn't bring the eternal benefit that only grace, that only God can do. And we've got to learn that difference. Because if we attach ourselves to worldly things with religious devotion, you know what happens to us? We become like the thing that we attached ourselves to. 
And we do that anyway. If we attach ourselves to God, we become more like God. If we attach ourselves to eternal truth, to grace, to love, we become more like grace. But if we attach ourselves to worldly things, we become more like worldly things. And we will fight tooth and nail to protect it then when changes start to happen. Listen to Psalm 135, 15 through 18. It says the idols of the nations, okay? Now the idols, understand, that's what they religiously devote themselves to. It doesn't have to be the little figurine, okay? Just an idol is something that you give eternal value to that is not of eternal value. It says the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Now, what did he just say? In, in, in the first, first three verses here, he said they have zero power. They don't breathe. They don't see. They don't hear. They have no life in them. None. He says they're dead. And if you follow them, you too become dead inside you become like them. And this is why it is so important for us to latch on, and you'll see where this is going in a minute. It is why it is so important for us to latch on to the eternal nature of God, the unchanging nature of God first and only. When we latch on there, then we have an anchor that holds firm when the world changes around us. Because sometimes things can change drastically. And quickly. And if we don't have an anchor in the love of God, in the truth of God, in the holiness of God, if we aren't anchored there, then we will be, as Scripture says, tossed to and fro by everything that's happening. We will be thrown about as rudderless ships in a storm. And God doesn't want that for us. Okay? And here's the thing. Don't underestimate our ability to create idols, okay? The human heart is an idol factory because we look for stable points to hold on to. We do. We just, we want it. We crave it. And for some reason, we just don't have enough faith to believe that God is the unchanging hope that we can put our hope in no matter what. We want something more tangible. We want something a little more right here in my life right now. So we will, we will create idols out of all kinds of things. I mean, there, there's money, there's pleasure. Just read the book of Ecclesiastes and you'll see everything that Solomon said, you know what, I'll invest myself here. Ah, it was chasing after the wind, didn't work out. I'll invest myself here, didn't work out. And he gets all the way to the end of his life and he says, you know what, here's the end of the matter. Fear God and obey His commandments. After trying everything he could, he finally decided the best thing people could do was what? Put their hope in the unchanging God that that's what was needed. Because we can even turn people into idols and those people would never approve of it. Ever. Okay, listen to this. In 1 Corinthians 3, 3 3-9, Paul says, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, 
but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. You see, even in Corinth, they were making idols out of people, out of Paul. They're like, oh, I follow Paul. He's more important. And other people, well, I follow Apollos. He's the one that really taught me. And Paul writes to him and says, what are you doing? Don't do that. We're both fellow workers. Focus on God. If I laid a foundation, great. If he watered it and you grew, great. Because God's provided all of it. Put your focus on him. Put your focus on him. Because while our God does not change, the way he works does. Have you ever noticed that? How many of you have been Christians for a long time and God still surprises you? I hope all of you. I mean, it's because if you're following God, you're going to notice that. It's like, man, he, he doesn't do the same thing the same way twice, like hardly ever. He just doesn't. Our God is creative. He likes to do things different ways all the time. He likes to show his creativity. And if we lock into, here's how God works and here's only how God works, guess what? You're going to be disappointed. Because God says, I'm creative. I'm infinite. I can choose any way I want to do this. And if there's not a way, I'll create a way because I'm God. That's what I do. I create. And so what we have to learn to do, okay, is learn to see God's purpose in what he's doing and what we're doing so that we can learn to value the purpose over the process. Now, this is where we get back to the wineskins, okay, in, in the patch. If God is unchanging, then that means his purposes are always going to be in line with his nature, with his grace, with his truth. He's not going to contradict himself. God isn't going to change his mind 10 years from now and say, you know what? Never mind on that whole holiness thing. I changed my mind. He's not going to do that. So his purposes will always be clear. But how he gets there, well, that's, that's going to change. That's going to change a lot. Generation to generation, person to person, week to week, day to day. God changes the way we interact and do things. Now, that doesn't change our faith. It doesn't change the truth of who He is. It doesn't change His purpose that we are here to glorify Him, to make disciples, and to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Those things will never change. If we are a healthy church, then that means we're making disciples. That means we're fellowshipping together. That means we're worshiping in spirit and truth. That means we're glorifying God in everything that we do. That will never change. But you know what? Everything else can change and still accomplish those goals. And so we have to learn to value the purpose over the process. And so let me ask you, what is your purpose as a Christian? Has anybody ever really asked you that? What is your purpose? Throughout church history, you know, church theologians kind of come back to one place, and that is to glorify God. That is our purpose in life. Well, how do we glorify Him? Love Him, love your neighbor, make disciples, worship in spirit and in truth, strive for holiness. 
Those purposes don't change generation to generation. But guess what? The way we do it will. We, we sang a hymn today, How Great Thou Art. Right? That wasn't exactly how I remember that hymn back in the day. I recognized the words. But the music was sure different, right? Did we do anything wrong doing that? Absolutely not. Because things change. And so, we always need to worship. And we know what worship looks like through the centuries has greatly changed. What we did in here today, what we called worship, 200 years ago, people might say, that's not worship. That, that's, that's not worship. 500 years ago, they'd say, what are you doing? <laughs> why, why are you doing this? What is this? A thousand years ago, they would say, why are you not chanting? You see, things just change. And, and we can look at it in history, and somehow, I don't know why this happens, but we can look at it in history and say, oh yeah, they used to do that, they used to do that. And then we get to modern times, and it's like, it's got to be like this. And we kind of forget, what is the purpose? You see, when we value the process instead of the purpose, we get it backwards. Let me say that again. When we value the process over the purpose, we get it backwards. And we do exactly what Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.5 about when he talks about people. And he says, there are people who have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. What is the power? The power is in the purpose. The power is in the relationship with God. The power is in the faith that lives for God daily and puts their trust in Jesus Christ's resurrection and in His return. That's where the power is. But if we put our faith in, well, we need to sing the first, second, and fourth hymn of the verse, first verse of the hymn. See, our traditional Baptists here, no, they're laughing. I see it. What did the third verse do to anyone? I don't understand why we rejected it wholesale. Like, But we really did, didn't we? I mean, we kind of latched on to a process that was like, this is how it's going to be. And we locked in hard. And for a time, it worked, right? Until it didn't. What happened? Did God change? No. Did we change? Yeah, we did. And we didn't even know it. Somewhere along the line, we latched onto a process instead of the purpose of the process. And we started valuing the process over the purpose. And then the process itself became the purpose. And then we couldn't understand why we had a form of godliness, but no power behind it. Because God was doing something new and doing something different. And too many people refused to get on board. And you know what? God didn't stop. What did I tell you last week? He says, he'll just go find people who are willing to do it. Now, I'm not pointing finger at anybody in here. I'm just speaking generally. But when, when a Christian refuses to get on board with God, what God's doing, he'll just say, okay, you just stand right there and I'll go find someone that will do it. Because that's what he does. And, and so it, it's amazing to me how we can get so attached to a process that we're familiar with. And this is the, the image that he talks about then. He says, nobody puts new wine into an old wineskin. And the reason for that is 
the wine, of course, would ferment. And as it ferments, gases are released. And the new wine skin was elastic. It could stretch. It had room to grow. And so you put the new wine into the new wine skin. And as the wine fermented, the wine skin could expand. There was room for growth. But he says you wouldn't put new wine into an old wine skin. Why? Because that old wine skin was stretched as far as it was going to go. It was dried out. It had sat out there outside and the wind and the elements and the smoke from fires had gotten to it. It was dry. You couldn't put new wine because there was no more room for growth. And if you did, and it started to try to expand more, what happened? It burst. The wine was ruined. The skin was ruined. Everything was ruined. And when we value process over the purpose, that's what we're doing. We're putting new wine into an old wineskin and saying, this worked before. Why won't it work now? And guess what? It just doesn't have room to grow anymore. It doesn't reach people. It doesn't speak the way that it used to. And I want to give you an example. I'm not picking on someone here, but it is such a perfect example. At a previous church I served at, I won't say which one. We had a process in this church for... We, we did a lot of funerals at this church. And every time we had a funeral at the church, we would have a funeral meal, a, a, a benevolence meal for the family. And there was a process that had worked in this church for 30 years. And it worked great until it didn't. And it happened to break down while I was there. And when I say break down, I mean it broke down. It just was not working anymore, like at all. It didn't work. So much so that, that me and secretary and other staff were literally running out and buying food to bring in to give to people because it was not working anymore. And so we reached a point where I finally, as the pastor said, look, we got to do something different. This just isn't working. This isn't an offense to anybody. I'm not, you know, nobody did anything wrong. It's just, we got we to gotta revamp this thing so that people get food. <laughs> if we promise them a meal, there needs to be a meal. And so we changed the process and I had a deacon come to me and he said, this has worked for 30 years. I don't know why we're changing it. And I said, well, it's not working anymore. And he took me out to lunch and told me all the reasons it didn't need to change. And I said, well, man, I'll tell you what, if you can tell me how to make it work again, we can leave it the same. But until it starts working, we've got to make a change. And he says, well, I disagree. And I said, well, okay. I guess we're at an impasse. And so we went on, and the next time we had a funeral, we did it the new way, and he came in and says, I thought we had an understanding. I said, we understood that we disagreed. And so it came up in our next deacon's meeting, and he was furious. And this man had been going to this church for more than 30 years, and a younger deacon in the room said, I don't know what we're upset about here. He says, to me, the whole purpose is the grieving family that we need to minister to. That if we're going to have a meal, we need to have a meal. The point is the grieving family. And this older deacon said, well, I disagree. Yeah, he actually said the words. I sat there and I was like, wow, well, at least you owned it. You see, he had become so connected to a process that he had lost sight of the purpose. 
They left the church over this. 30 years they had been there, serving, faithful, and got so upset that they couldn't make their thing of green beans and drop it off that they left. You see, we will just make idols that are just ridiculous. And it's up to us to make sure, like we got to focus on the eternal truth. What is the purpose? The purpose wasn't who made the meal. The purpose was the grieving family that we wanted to minister to and show the love of Jesus to. That was the purpose. And so we trust God to show us in each generation, in each time, how to achieve His purposes. And it's going to look different from generation to generation. And that's okay. So long as you know, those that are older in the faith see the purposes of God at the forefront, they should rejoice in it. And the younger ones in the faith, when they start to go astray from the purposes, need to be brought back to know this is what we do. And we work together in this, and the purposes of God are wonderful, and, and, and they achieve wonderful things. Lives are transformed. The kingdom is proclaimed. It's everything God wants us to do. And we have to trust Him to make a way. In Isaiah 43, 16-19, it says, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Now what he's saying is that when we don't see a way, God will make a way. He says in this, do not remember former things. Let go of it. Move forward. And even if you look at it and say, I don't know how this is going to work. Understand, God does. Too many times we want it to be completely laid out and, and peaceful and fully understood and explained and comfortable. And I haven't known anyone that God worked like that with. Anyone in here? Just a quick check. God doesn't care. I mean, He cares, but he, his, his focus is not our comfort. His focus is our holiness and our faithfulness. And sometimes to increase our faith, He's got to make us uncomfortable. And He's got to get us to trust He's going to make a way forward. So long as we are still engaging in the purposes that are eternal. So sometimes we look at something and say, why am I not getting fruit in this? Well, are you trying to recreate the past? Are you trying to do something that, that you, you, has already been done? Are you trying to, to resurrect dead roses and make them red again? Or are you genuinely trying to move forward in the kingdom of God and do the things He wants you to do right now? Because there is a difference. And I know when we get them confused and say, no, I'm doing the things of God. It's always been this is the things of God. Except God moved over here. And we just stayed here. Now, we, we don't have it in here because this is a more modern you know, sanctuary. But... Uh, again, some of our older Baptists will know when we used to have you know pews everywhere, you know, going back. Did you ever wonder why there were the pews on the side? 
Everybody, our, our older Baptists, you remember those? Like there were always the two pews on the side. Anyone here know why those were there? Anybody remember? How many years did we continue with pews on the side and we had no idea why? Right? We just did it. We just put them there. You know why we did that? Because way back in the 1800s, 1800s, that was called a mourner's bench. And it was when people were overcome by their sin during the service, if they didn't want to distract people, they would get up from their pew from around and go over there to cry. Now, I, I think that's amazing. That meant that they expected God's going to move and God's going to convict and people are going to be touched by the gospel and people were preaching and people were hearing it. And so they put in some pews on the side of the room for people to go respond to what God wanted mid-service. Now, I don't know when that stopped, but we sure kept the pews around for a long time. Why? Because we had a form of godliness, but we didn't have the power behind it. And so what do we do with all this? This, this is not a rant on tradition sermon, okay? Please, if, if you're thinking that, it is not. But he tells us something important when he says you don't tear a, a, a patch from a new garment to put it on an old. What have you just done? You tore up the new one. You tore the new garment, which was new, and it doesn't match. It doesn't even fit on the old one. Sometimes you just got to let things move forward and trust God is going to make a way. Which means we ourselves have to commit ourselves. Okay, and this is it. Here's your challenge for today. We have to commit ourselves to always move forward. Move forward. That doesn't mean we leave the purposes of God behind. That means that we're always willing to say, God, what is it that you want me to do? Do you want me to change? Do you want something different? What do you want? I know you want me to make disciples. I know you want me to love you and love my neighbor. I know you want me to worship in spirit and in truth. I know you want those things. So in what I do, do I need to change how I'm doing it to better achieve those purposes? And there is amazing freedom in life when we are willing to put the purpose over the process. When we see the process as just a means to an end, this is just how we get to doing these things. That's it. And I mean this even in your personal life, okay? That we can sometimes lock in and it's like, it's got to be like this. And Why? No, it doesn't. Let God have some room. This is one of my favorite sayings is give God room to work. Be willing to open it up and say, you know what, God, everything's on the table. Because I know, I know the eternal truth, so I know things that are going to line up. I know if you have a family, you want me to be faithful and lead my family. If you're, if you're a man, you, you know, I know you want me to love my wife. I know that. It will never change. But how I do it, that might need to change. My commitment is to the purpose, not to the process. I use the process. And I change the process as necessary. You see, there is a reason when you're driving in a car, the windshield is so big and the rearview mirror is so small. Because nobody is expected to drive backwards for very long at all. Yes, we need to understand the past. We need to honor it. We need to respect it. But we certainly don't need to attach ourselves to it. We've got to move forward. 
Listen to Paul in Philippians 3, 13 through 16. He says, but one thing I do, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. He says, you move forward and what you know is true, cling to that because the truth will never change. The truth will never change. Maybe we get rebellious one day and we sing that third verse. And we just say, hey, look, we sing it. We sing all four. What do you think of that? We're living on the edge out here in Pleasant Hill. But when we attempt to combine old and new, it just doesn't work. When we, when we try to hold on to the past and force something from the past into the present, a process that no longer works, it just destroys both. It stops new growth from happening and it really kind of dishonors the past. It just wrecks both of them. And so the best way to honor the past is to engage in the present for the kingdom of God with the same fervor and zeal that they did in the past. Pursue the same purpose. When we refuse to move forward and try to drag the past into the present, all we do is destroy both the legacy of the past and our effectiveness in the present. But we've got to understand it is human nature to want to hold on to the familiar. Jesus closes this entire parable with, I think, a phrase that is so true that we, we just have to put it in our mind and just remember it. He says, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. No one desires the new. Jesus knows. He's like, I'm telling you this right now, but I know what you're going to do as people is you're going to find something you like and you're going to latch on to it and you're going to never want to let go because it's, it, it's good. It worked. It made you feel alive. And, and at the time, it was perfect. And it was of God. And it, and it pointed you to the purpose of, of God. But there came a time that the commitment moved over to the process instead of continued engagement with the purpose. And He knows. I mean, I, to me, it's just amazing that He teaches this parable this way and then He closes it with this. And no one after drinking old wine desires the new. For he says the old is good. We just, we like our comfort. And I think within this, there's grace that God's saying, I get it. I mean, Jesus is saying, I get it. I understand you. I know. I know the struggle that I am placing right in front of you with this. I know it's real and it's okay. My grace is sufficient for you. And so we, we, we struggle through with this as best we can, knowing that change is hard. Amen? Change is hard. I mean, I've had somebody ask before, what is the number one cause of conflict? And people always say communication. And I say, no, you're not communicating properly. No, it's change. Change is the number one cause of conflict. And we don't want conflict. We don't want to be in conflict with ourselves or with God or with each other. We don't like it. And yet, change is the only way that we grow. 
And so God really engages us in this paradox of, I'm going to force you to grow. I'm going to make you uncomfortable. And I know you're not going to like it, but eventually you're going to adopt it. And when you do adopt it, it's going to do wonderful things. And then when it's time to grow again, you're going to cling to that. And you're not going to want to move forward. And it's just what we do over and over. And so my final challenge for you today is simply this, is honor the past and embrace the future. Look forward that God has new things for you. You're not called to just continually repeat the same thing over and over. His purposes mean engaging Him in new ways. Worshiping in new ways. Still worship, but new, new forms of worship. New ways. New ways of reaching out. New ways of, of loving other people. But it'll always come back to the same purpose.